uh, well, we're going to finish tonight by kind of concluding our study that we've been doing together. It's not been so much a preaching series, so much as a study together on worldviews. And in particular, we've been looking at the Christian or biblical worldview as it is compared to other dominant worldviews in our culture. So, we have looked at what so far? We've looked at naturalism, or materialism, humanism, right? We're all kind of lumped into the same idea. Those who basically look at science as the end-all, be-all of everything. Where did this world come from? Uh, it exploded, and it just was. Uh, where are we going when we die? Nowhere, we just die. Uh, that's naturalism. And, and uh, last week, we were looking at agnosticism and atheism, and how those compare and contrast to one another. And uh, they are different, as we learned, right? An atheist flat out says there is no God, whereas an agnostic says it is impossible to know whether God exists or not. And we saw how those played out, and uh, we compared them to one another. Uh, as we begin our time together today, I want to look at a particular text uh, in their scriptures, and we will have these. Basically, what I want to do is I want to I want to set a foundational truth for us, and we're going to look at the warning that the scriptures uh, talk about to the world and the way the world thinks, and then we're going to look at a worldview that actually thinks that way down to a T, and we're going to see how it doesn't play out just as scripture says. Okay, so I want you to look with me at Colossians chapter two, verses twenty, through chapter three, verse ten. It's actually not that much text. It seems like it when you go from one chapter to the other. But uh, Colossians chapter 2, verse 20 is where we'll begin. Okay, and here's what it says. If, with Christ, you died to the elemental spirits of the world, which he's taking to be true, right? You did die to the elemental spirits of the world. Why, as if you were still alive in the world... Do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, and set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died. Your life is hidden with Christ in God, and when Christ, who is your life, appears, you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. So this little uh, turnaround here, uh, the cause uh, leading, leading into the therefore is really important. Why do we put to death what is earthly in us? Because the other way of thinking was saying, oh, put, put to death what is earthly. In other words, don't touch that thing. Don't handle that thing. Don't taste that thing. Put it to death. Don't, don't get near it. So that's what the bad worldview is saying. But Paul is saying, well, in, in one regard, they kind of have something, right? That some earthly things are bad that you need to get rid of. But he's saying, our reason for doing these things is very different than their reason for doing these things. Their stuff does not stop the indulgence of the flesh. But here's what we have to stop the indulgence of the flesh. We have the very spirit of God. 
we're, this isn't even our home. We should set our minds on the things that are of heaven, where Christ is. And so that should be our outlook, and therefore we ought to put to death these particular things. And that's what he says in verse 5. What is earthly in you? So earthly bad, right? Heavenly good. That's the distinction. Earthly stuff bad that is in you, put it to death. Heavenly stuff good. Seek that stuff. Get that stuff and put it on. And put the earthly stuff to death. The earthly stuff that he's talking about, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. We talked about that on Sunday. And on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. And in these, you too, uh, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. And he lists some more. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another. See that you have put off the old self with its practices. And you have put on the new self, which is being renewed after the image of its creator. There you go. I needed to get to that particular point. We are being renewed after the image of our creator. So we can divide it into these two things here. A false portion and a true portion, and I've kind of summarized it for us. So the false portion is this. Deprive yourself of the desires and pleasures you crave in this world. And this is wisdom. That's this false, okay? But that's what he's saying these people will tell you. Deprive yourself. That's what asceticism is. It's uh, kind of depriving yourself. Deprive yourself of the desires and pleasures you crave in this world. And here is wisdom. That's what they say, right? Deprive yourself, and in this is wisdom. But what is true is this. Be transformed into the image of your creator who is in heaven. So there's some overlap here, and this is really the point, is that if we are to be transformed into the image of our creator, we're going to put to death what is earthly in us. That's the reason for our being transformed. Okay, so two different ways of looking at this. One group of people who are earthly, not spiritual, that is, they do not have the spirit of God, will say, some of them will say, do not touch that, do not handle that, and deprive yourself of pleasure. And if you do that, then that is the wisdom you need to survive. That's what's best. And Paul evaluates that and says, no, that's not the way we should look at life. We should look at life in this way. We are being transformed and we are being changed into the image of our creator and what that necessarily means is putting to death the earthly stuff and putting on the heavenly stuff okay keep this in mind as we evaluate this particular worldview that we're going to look at together so just remember our two major worldview categories we have supernatural worldviews and we have philosophical worldviews right and the two, there's very little overlap between these two uh, types of worldviews. We've been focusing our attention on philosophical worldviews. Why? Because they are the dominant worldviews underneath Christianity. I put that in quotations. Christianity in the United States. Underneath, uh, well, okay, go ahead and show that next one. So here are the percentages. Percentages uh, in the U.S., we've already looked at this. But the dominant majority still has a, quote, Christian worldview, right? Now, is it thoroughly biblical? No. No, it is what? What is it called when so-called Christians take a little bit of this and a little bit of that? Syncretism. That's right. Uh, what is the next category? The nuns. 
16.3% literally say, religion is not my thing. No, thank you. No. Religion, no. That's the box they check. And who falls into that category? What worldview that we've looked at? For the most part. Uh, that would be the naturalists. Right? I don't have any religion. I believe in science. Right? That's, that's how it goes. Uh, agnosticism and atheism are pretty high percentages. And so we looked at both of those last week. Now, I had a choice to make. What are we going to look at next? Because there's a lot of other stuff going on here. I picked one that I see as the most dominant, prevalent threat to Christianity, which is Buddhism, which you may or may not realize. But I hope that by the end of our discussion, you're going to realize how big a threat Buddhism is to syncretistic Christians. That is, there are many Christians who have brought Buddhist ideas into their Christianity, I think, without even knowing it. I didn't even know that was a Buddhist idea, but you're trying to live it out, but you call yourself a Christian. You're a syncretist. You're taking what you like and what you hear, and you're making it your own thing. Buddhism. I'm going to start by uh, giving you the basic, uh, the answers to the basic worldview questions from the Buddhist perspective. How did we get here? How do Buddhists answer that question? They don't. They refuse to answer that question. They say an enlightened person, properly speaking, would not even ask that question. That's outrageous. Don't ask that question. Okay, so hands off. Didn't know. Okay, can't ask that question. Number two, what is the problem? Suffering is the problem, according to Buddhism. Number three, what is the solution? You need to work to reach enlightenment. That is the solution. And then number four, what happens when we die? Well, you've got two options, just like in Christianity. Right? For us, it is either heaven or hell, which is true. For them, however, uh, it is either rebirth or nirvana. You got two options. One of those two is going to happen to you. How does all this work, and what is the history of uh, their situation? We're going to look at that, but first I'm going to show you a couple pictures. All right? Picture number one. This is in Japan. It is a statue of what? What is this? It's Buddha. It's a Buddha. A Buddha is correct. It's a Buddha. A Buddha statue, it's 390 feet tall. Just to get a scope of like uh, an idea of how big this thing is, uh, here's a guy pressure washing the nose. That thing is massive. 390 feet tall. Here's another one. This one is in Myanmar, and it looks fake. I, I know that this looks very fake. It's not fake. This is very real. Two Buddhas here, one standing, one reclining. Uh, the tall one, 420 feet tall. 424 feet tall. Unbelievable. Okay, and then here's the last one. This is the, the Spring Temple Buddha in China, 682 feet tall. 682 feet tall. Do you know how big the Great Pyramid of Giza is? 455 feet. Take the pyramid, the biggest one, and set it down next to this thing. This thing's going to tower over top of it. That's how big that thing is. What is this? What, 
Why, why gigantic statues of a Buddha? And why are they all different? What is this? I think these are good questions to ask. This is very much part of the belief system. Okay, so we're going to start with the history of Buddhism, and I'm going to make it short and sweet. The history of Buddhism is important to Buddhism as a whole. If you don't know where it came from, you're not going to have any clue of why they do what they do. The history of Buddhism starts with a guy, uh, Siddhartha Gautama, lived between 567 and 43 BC. BC. Follow me on how old that is? Okay. So, uh, Siddhartha Gautama, um, a real person, it seems. No reason to believe that this was not a real person. Um, he was a prince, the son of a king. And he lived a very privileged and luxurious life. And he decided that he wanted to go see the world because he lived a very pampered life, right? He wanted to go see what the average folk live like. And so he rode around and just observed throughout the town, and he saw something. He saw people suffering. He saw people with sickness, with old age. And he saw a dead body. He had never seen this before. He was 29 years old. He had never seen such things, and it disturbed him. It disturbed him down to his core, and the reason being is because he knew that one day he would never be able to avoid suffering. He's going to get sick. He's going to die one day. He's going to get old, and this depressed him. So he left his wife and his newborn son, and he uh, took on several teachers, and he tried something... Uh, called asceticism and severity to the body. And he, uh, he, he was in a forest and he got to the point of near, basically he was gonna die from starvation. He was starving himself to death. He was depriving himself of all these things to the body and he was about to die. And then he realized that this was only adding more suffering to his life, not less. So there's got to be more. So he ate food and he sat down underneath a tree and he sat and he thought and he thought and he thought. We call that meditating now. And he meditated. By morning, he had reached enlightenment. It provided him with the true answers and the causes of suffering and a way to be permanently released from suffering. He began to be known as the Enlightened One, and in Sanskrit, that is translated Buddha. So Buddha is the Enlightened One. And then he came up with this whole idea, this concept of suffering in the world, and how to be released from it, and how the world operates, and how the world works, and he called this Dharma. The nature of reality as taught by the Buddha is what Dharma is. I want to know more, you might say. Well, I'm glad you do. What does Dharma teach or what, what does the Buddha have to say about Dharma and how the world operates and what are we to do and what is suffering and how does all this stuff work together? Well, in order to answer that, you all you need is four points and they are called the Four Noble Truths. The Four Noble Truths govern everything in Buddhism. They are four basic truths. Number one, suffering exists. Okay. You have to acknowledge that first in order to be a Buddhist. 
you have to acknowledge that suffering is real in the world. Ultimately, we feel unhappy, unfulfilled, and sad. That's how they describe humanity. Unhappy, unfulfilled, and sad, and so we suffer. That's number one. Number two, craving is the cause of suffering. Desire is a real evil. The roots of all evil are greed, ignorance, and hatred, according to Buddhists. Greed, ignorance, and hatred. Craving is the cause of suffering. And so what does this mean? Just think back to that text we read. Uh, you need to deprive yourself of all the things that you crave. Right? Deprive yourself of all these cravings. And if you do that, there is wisdom. Because craving is bad. Craving leads to suffering. Do you know why? Do you get why they say that? It's because if you crave something and you don't get it, it makes you sad. I want to not be sick, but I am sick and that makes me sad. I want good food, but I have gross food and that makes me sad. Right? I want this relationship, but I can't have it and that makes me sad. I want perfection, but I can never get it and that makes me sad. When I'm sad, I suffer. So cravings, then, are the problem. If we can just get rid of our cravings, we would be good. Okay, there's another truth that you can be free from suffering. That is... That's good news. That's their gospel. You can be set free from all this suffering, from all your cravings, from all your desires, from all the ills that will ever come upon you. You can be set free from suffering, and isn't that what you want? You can be liberated from your desires. Permanent liberation from your desires can come. Um, but you have to follow some steps. Uh, but before we get to following the Eightfold Path, let me just explain two words that you've heard before. One is nirvana, and the other is karma. Nobody in this room, I believe, is unaware of the terms nirvana and karma. You have heard those words before, correct? You're familiar with it. Why are you familiar with these words? It's Buddhist. Why are you familiar with Buddhist terminology? Something to think about. What is nirvana? Nirvana is that state of true enlightenment where you have pushed away all desires and now you are free. You have extinguished the fires of all evil. You have been completely liberated from all your, des your desires and suffering. Nirvana sets you free from a cycle of rebirth. We would probably call this reincarnation. They do not call it reincarnation. They call it rebirth. Um, you are reborn. And you are reborn how? Into what? Into who? Those are all good questions. It all depends on your karmic imprints at the time of your death. In other words, depending on karma and your situation according to your karmic imprints left upon you at your death will determine... How you are reborn. Into what or into who? So, the more positive karma you have when you die, the better off you'll be. And so maybe if you're born into better and better and better and better situations, you might have a better chance at reaching nirvana sooner. Once you reach nirvana, you don't, you're not reborn. You go into the state of nirvana. You have 
broken free of this constant cycle of rebirth. That's the goal. You want to reach nirvana. For Buddhists, reaching nirvana is the goal. Becoming enlightened is the goal. What is karma? Karma, um, actually for Buddhists, is more about what is going to happen to you in the next life and what has happened in your previous life, not so much about what's going to happen to you now. Because when karma is talked about in popular culture, it's like, oh, that was bad karma. Something bad's going to happen to me because I did something bad. That's not really how, it, how Buddhists think about karma. It's more about your, it's lasting, okay? We're thinking about the next life, and we're thinking about the karma that was present in our previous life and what you need to do to overcome and become more enlightened in this life. So um, uh, I'll leave that alone. That's good enough. So what you need to do then is you want to reach nirvana by becoming enlightened. That's your goal in this life and the next life. And hopefully one day, one day, you will finally break free of this cycle of rebirth. Okay? So how do you do that? Well, you follow eight simple steps. Okay? The eightfold path. The eightfold path. Here's how to get there. Number one, right understanding. It all begins with a right understanding, a right thinking about things. This is where study of their scriptures comes from, the writings of the Buddha. Uh, striving for true uh, reality. Okay, so you just have to understand. You just have to understand how things work. That's number one. Number two, right intention. That is your attitude toward learning. You need to have the right emotions. It needs to be positive. Number three is about your speech. You need to have right speech. You need to talk truthfully, honestly, promoting harmony with others. You getting the idea of Buddhism? Why are they doing all these things? Well, it all has to do with karma and your karmic imprint at your death. Number four is action, right action. And what this is all about is about being peaceful, loving, and compassionate. And there are five precepts involved in right action which are do not exploit others, do not lie, do not steal, do away with desires, and do not use substances. Number five is right livelihood, that is positive social engagement. Number six, right effort. You need to avoid negative thoughts and encourage positive thoughts. Number seven is mindfulness. Did a bunch of lights just go off for people? Mindfulness. Okay, who in recent days, months, years has heard the word mindfulness? Yeah, okay. If you can't see, it's about half the room. Be aware of everything. Because the more you can engage your mind, and you're going you're gonna to have a better uh, right understanding of how things work. And, and understanding is number one. It's, it's the first step of the path. You have to understand. And so be aware of all things all the time. Be aware of yourself. Be aware of your thoughts. Be aware of other people. Be aware of how everything is going on. You need to just be mindful. Mindfulness is important. Number eight is concentration. Stay focused on the path. And this is where formal meditation comes in. Okay, so you want to sit, and you want to meditate, and you want to think, and you want to stay focused, concentrated. The Eightfold Path, this is good. The Four Noble Truths, I need to stay focused on all that's going on, and meditation helps. There is something called Zen Buddhism. Have you heard of Zen Buddhism? Ever heard the word Zen before? Why have you heard about Zen before? 
is planting little seeds. Okay, why have you heard about Zen before? Why have you heard about karma before? Why have you heard about nirvana before? Why do you know these things? Why have you heard mindfulness before? A lot of Buddhist terms that we're all familiar with for some reason. Zen Buddhism believes in something called non-duality, which is a mystic, mystical thought. Um, I, I was actually going to focus just on mysticism, and as I began exploring mysticism in more and more detail, the Buddhist uh, belief system is mystical in nature. Um, and so it, it, it has mystic ideas buried within it, and actually part of its very system. So it's a non-duality, meaning you are not two parts, you are not three parts, you are one part, and it is one unified whole. Uh, mind and body are interconnected. Mind-body, mind-body. They need to be more interconnected, and you need to work to get your mind and your body more interconnected. And what do you do to get your mind and body interconnected? Anybody? Yoga. That's right. Why have you heard about yoga? Why are we so familiar with Buddhist practices? It's all about bringing the body into alignment with the mind. Positions help guide energy through your body to bring both things into alignment, mind and body. That's what yoga does. That's the purpose of yoga. So what is mysticism? Mysticism is the inward pursuit of truth and ultimate reality. You need to go within yourself. You need to raise your level of conscience, consciousness. Everything is of this creation. And only a few have delved deep enough into its nature to see the existence that it is. That sounds special. There's a guy named Alan Watts, and he explains it this way. A mystic seeks something, and it's this. It's a feeling. It's a sensation. It's an experience. He said, I find myself to be one with nature or the world outside of me, and I suddenly feel no longer a stranger in the world, and it's a whimsical, unpredictable experience. This is, this is the point. Universal harmony, non-duality, it comes out of the blue. It can't be sought after. Becoming united with God to the experience of divine awareness. What does all that mean? Anybody else think that when I was saying all those things? What does all this mean? There's a guy named Richard Rohr. I wonder, has anybody in the room ever heard of Richard Rohr? Okay, two people have and they cringed. Okay. We are following a path and we're almost at the end of it, okay? It's not the Eightfold Path, it's a different path. We're following a path and we're almost at the end of it. I'm leading you somewhere. We started with Colossians. We talked about the history of Buddhism. We talked about how they do what they do. I planted little seeds saying, why are you so familiar with Buddhism? Um, and now we are talking about mystics and Richard Rohr. I'm about to bring it full circle. Just bear with me. Here's what Richard Rohr has to say. He wrote a book called What the Mystics Know, Seven Pathways to Your Deeper Self. Don't read it, please. Mystics have plumbed the depths of both suffering and love and emerged with depths of compassion for the world and a learned capacity to recognize God within themselves, in others, and in all things. experiential knowledge of God. Enlightenment. 
beginning is a profound change individually, emptying the self. That leads us into Christian mysticism, which is a real thing. Transforming into union with God, all nature will eventually be united with God, oneness with God through the intentional oneness with Jesus Christ. And now it's getting more specific. Now we're getting a lot more blending of the ideas together. Speaking of yoga, I want to read a quote for you. It says, yoga reminds us we are completely whole as we are, and we are not broken at all. To attune to our wholeness, practicing meditation and yoga postures, it helps us to reconnect our inner self, and it reminds us that we are indeed whole as we are. So yoga helps you to realize that you are whole just as you are. Anybody know where I got that from, that quote? Anybody have any guess? I got it from a, from a blog of a yoga company known as Bhakti Yoga and Wellness. Anybody know where that is? Right there. Right on the other side of this wall. Literally on the other side of this wall is Bhakti Yoga and Wellness. It is close to home. I will... Uh... So, okay. <clears throat> I need to get to my point. I gave you the history of Buddhism. I gave you a brief summary of its practices and beliefs. I told you that Buddhism is a mystic religion, that mysticism focuses on oneness and experience. And you need to focus on becoming one with will say God, right? It's non-dual. It is a oneness, and it is an ecstatic experience, right? It just rushes upon you, and you just know that it's right, okay? So I'm going to end by giving you three ways that Buddhist practices and mysticism are seen in our current culture and why they're such a threat to us, okay? Let's say that again. I'm going to give you three ways that Buddhist practices and mysticism are seen in our culture and are such a threat to us. Number one. Yoga, wellness, and mindfulness. Yoga, wellness, and mindfulness. Now, for some people, yoga simply means stretching, right? It just means they're doing a little pose right there and that, yeah, that looks like it hurts, but I might try it because it might make me feel better. That's not really what we're talking about. Yoga is a practice at its core, that seeks to position the body in such a way to move the energy through your body to connect your mind and your body together into the oneness that it is. And the more you do that, the more you are prone to enlightenment. Okay? Which is the goal in Buddhism. So, uh, wellness. What is wellness? Wellness and mindfulness. Wellness and mindfulness are very popular in our culture right now. Because there is even something called Christian yoga, Christian wellness, and Christian mindfulness. And so what has happened is that we see something that looks intriguing to us because oh, we're all suffering after all, aren't we? Well, Christians suffer too. And so this path has a way for us to escape that suffering. Our path of Christianity doesn't seem to really offer much escape from suffering. Buddhism has some answers. So what should we do? Bring those two worlds together. Let them live together in harmony. Okay? 
Um, Christian mindfulness is basically uh, saying that meditation and mindfulness are the same. We should meditate. Christians say we should meditate. Should you meditate as a Christian? What am I meditating on? Should we meditate on the Word? Oh, absolutely. Should we meditate so as to uh, reach enlightenment? Buddhist, most Buddhists would say that Jesus was an enlightened individual because he had some good things to say. He was very far on his path. He was near reaching nirvana himself. Okay, so that's the first way, is that yoga, wellness, and mindfulness are just very prevalent in our culture. The second and third thing are what I would like for us to be protected against more specifically. And those two things are this, charismatic experientialism and number three, Christian deconstructionism. And so charismatic experientialism is mysticism. Charismatic experientialism is mysticism at its core. What do I mean by that? It is an ecstatic experience of oneness with God and enlightenment. Anybody know what I mean by that? The charismatic experience in charismatic churches is what? An ecstatic experience of oneness with God. Right? That is what mysticism is to a T. That is mysticism. Oneness. The goal is to experience oneness with God, and it's an ecstatic experience that takes over. That is mixing mysticism with Christianity and coming up with this thing. Okay? I'm not the first to say that. Um, others have recognized that connection as well. It is a search within for meaning and truth. In other words, most charismatics would also say something like, I feel God is telling me, fill in the blank. How do you know that? I just I feel it within. Because it is an inward quest for truth and oneness with God that, ex that surfaces itself in ecstatic experience. So, uh, charismatic experientialism is the same as mysticism. It's, it's, it's just mixing the two together. Okay, so that, that is a real danger. Um, uh, Pentecostalism and, and the charismatic church are the fastest growing and largest uh, denomination sect of Christianity in the world. Did you know that? Uh, then number three, Christian deconstructionism. I've already mentioned this in a previous, uh, previously, uh, but it's so real, it's so true right now, and I'm just going to mention something that Richard Rohr has to say. Richard Rohr is a mystic, um, and here's what he has to say. It is time for reconstruction. We need to know what we do believe, and we are proud of only our past, what is good about even the broken things, such as life, church, and state, and how we can begin a new language of responsibility, a language of responsibility. I don't even know what that is. At this point, I think anything else is a waste of time and refusal of grace. Human life is too short to waste on the negative. It's too easy to be cynical. So, he says, I commit whatever years I have left. Listen, I commit whatever years I have left to reconstruction of church and culture. Otherwise, we will have no positive alternative ready when the deconstructed system falls apart. I have no doubt that it will because love is always stronger than death, whatever that means. So the mystic would say 
what? That we always need to be searching within for truth. And so, if the truth within that we've arrived at no longer fits the truth of old, then let the new truth replace the old truth. And that is the point. Okay? Now, I'm probably leaving you very confused. Let me tell you just maybe in a couple sentences what I want you to take away from tonight. Well, first of all, understanding the Buddhist worldview is, is helpful because Buddhism, and in particular, you know there is such a thing as Christian Buddhism? Um, Christian Buddhism is on the rise. Uh, Buddhism in general is on the rise. And uh, it is infiltrating popular culture. That's why you've heard of yoga and karma and nirvana and all these types of things, wellness, mindfulness, because it's infiltrating popular culture, which means that you could be participating in things that you don't even know why you're doing them or what they mean. And you're inserting them into your own worldview when in reality it's incompatible with the biblical worldview. Does that make sense? So how is this expressing itself within uh, the church? I think in two ways. First, in charismatic experientialism, and then second, in the deconstruction of the church. Okay? So, that was a lot of information. Um, hopefully, you have left these past five weeks understanding the biblical worldview, which we covered the first uh, week, what a worldview is, even, and why it's important. Everyone has one, right? It's like those different colored glasses. And we need to look through the lenses of Scripture to see the world. Does everyone look through the lenses of Scripture to see the world? No. So then, the more familiar we can be with the ways that other people are viewing the world, when we are told to put those glasses on and view the world a certain way, we can be prepared to say, no. I'm not going to view the world that way. That's not true. I understand where you're coming from, but that is not accurate. So if we can become familiar with these different views, it helps us to live in this world and to keep our glasses pure uh, or becoming pure as they should be through biblical lenses, okay? If you have more questions about that or and need any clarification about tonight, I'd be happy to talk with you. I could have talked about this for at least another two hours, but we're not going to do that, okay? Hopefully this little summary has been helpful. Uh, very interesting stuff there in Buddhism and the merging of Buddhism and Christianity, such as the Pope, right, uh, visiting Buddhist temples and, and admitting that uh, we're all the same, right? Anyway, I was going to talk to you about a lot of stuff, like the Dalai Lama. was the Dalai Lama? That's interesting stuff, too. So anyway, uh, but we'll, we'll end there. Uh, look back at that text in Colossians 2. And just, to, just see that in, in all of these practices and denying yourself and denying pleasures, none of that benefits in taking away the indulgence of the flesh. Strip me of food. Strip me of that desire. You can't stop sin on your own. And that's the point. Buddhists would say, no, we can stop it on our own. We would say, you cannot stop it on your own. That's the wrong way to view the world. That's the wrong way to view humanity. Okay? All right, well, in there, let me pray for us and uh, for this whole uh, time that we've had together. Okay, let's pray. Lord, I, I pray for us as a church tonight, and um, we've been looking for the past five weeks, we've been looking together at uh, the biblical worldview, worldviews, uh, dominant worldviews in, uh, in our current culture, and 
we pray. We pray for those people who um, are trapped in their sin and their ignorance and deny you as their maker. And we pray that we would have influence in this world to share the gospel, to share a biblical worldview with people. And uh, what is concerning to us even further is those people who call themselves Christians but don't actually have a biblical worldview. They've taken a little bit of this and a little bit of that, whether it be naturalism mixed with Christianity or Buddhism mixed with Christianity. It's that people are still not viewing the world, viewing you properly, viewing themselves properly, viewing sin properly, viewing the gospel properly. They're not seeing things rightly um, as, as it is. And so I pray that we would be your instruments and tools in this world to share the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, and I pray that we would be protected from these influences uh, that are so prevalent sometimes pushing in on us. So help us to see clearly, help us to be a strong culture of believers here as we unite under Christ. Protect us, protect our church. Uh, keep us safe tonight, and I pray that you would uh, bring us back in about a month on Wednesday nights uh, recharged and uh, ready to study your word together, have community together, and, and worship you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you guys so much for being here tonight, and uh, I'll see you on Sunday morning. I'll see some of you on Saturday, but just remember, no Wednesdays throughout the month.